Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, the state's sweeping new energy law is focused on P&M, but how does it impact rural electric co-ops? We have very strong, probably the strongest mandates in the country right now in terms of changing how we get our electricity. 50% renewables by 2030. And speaking of rural New Mexico, there are towns where there is no such thing as a fire department. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Some weeks our topics shake out thematically. This happens to be such a week. We just told you about the rural electric cooperatives in New Mexico's Energy Transition Act. The Albuquerque Journal's Kevin Robinson Avila is in studio to talk about his series of reports. And in Springer, a recent KRQE TV report showed the town's volunteer fire department was, at least for a time, up in smoke. The line talks about what that kind of trouble signifies for rural New Mexico. Our opinion panelists also look at recent protests at the pretrial release of a defendant in the Victoria Martins murder case and what they say about New Mexico's struggle with bail bond reform. We start this week with a federal court case about the Indian Child Welfare Act, its ties to New Mexico, and its place in the broader debate about our country's history of taking children from their parents. Enacted in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act requires states to prioritize the adoption of Native American children with relatives, tribal members, or other Native American families. Now, supporters of ICWA, as it's also known, say it protects against a history of policies allowing the government to take Native children from their families without cause, and often with the express goal of eradicating their tribal identities. But opponents say it puts a ch child's race above his or her well-being. Joining us to discuss, discuss this topic and others, we welcome this week's panel. Longtime regular and attorney Sophie Martin is here. With us again is former state representative and local attorney Justine Fox Young. Last time she was with us, there were two in her seat. Now there's just one as she's added a baby girl to the family. Congratulations. Thank you, Jean. And welcome back. Good I'm to see you. Glad to be back. Good to see you, too. Absolutely. Crystal Sierras is here. She's president and owner of Sierras Social Digital. Joins us, as always. And we're round off the line. Regular panel with Serge Martinez, who's also a professor at the UNM School of Law. Thank you all for being here. Now, last year, the federal judge in Texas ruled the Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional. A federal appeals court panel last week, though, overruled that decision, paving the way for a re-arguing of the case before the full appellate court and a potential future date before the U.S. Supreme Court, where it was this issue a few years ago. Now, Sophie, complicated legal situation to say the least, but let me start here. Did ICWA, in fact, while well-intended, go too far to right wrongs? No. Okay. No. Listen, at its heart, ICWA is about tribal sovereignty. Gotcha. And the, the tribes here in the U.S. have a unique relationship with the federal government, with the states. Mm -hmm. And really, I, I'm going to sort of like call out the thing you said before. You described the state courts yep. placing children into particular um, preferred environments. But, but actually, a big part of what ICWA does is it says mm -hmm. that the tribal courts have jurisdiction over certain types of family law matters involving the welfare of children who are either enrolled or could be enrolled in tribes in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so, and so uh, the best analogy I can, I can come up with right now is mm -hmm. um, if we acknowledge, and our government does, our Supreme Court does, that, that the tribal, um, tribal governments represent uh, nations mm -hmm. of their own, mm -hmm. um, imagine if we said to Brazil, um, we're going to adopt your kids and you can't stop us. Mm. And in addition to that, to the racism charge, mm -hmm. 
we're going to say to Brazil, you don't get to decide which of you, the people living in your country or which of the people associated with your country get citizenship. Mm. Think of Brazil. Brazil has uh, indigenous mm -hmm. individuals, you know, folks descending from indigenous populations. They've got former African slaves. That's they've right. got Europeans. And all of these people are defined by Brazil mm -hmm. as Brazilians. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of situation with our, with our tribal communities. They get to say who is a citizen of their tribe, who is a member of their tribe. And when the, the adoption or foster placement of a child who belongs to that tribe is at issue, mm -hmm. they should get to make the decision under ICWA. Mm -hmm. They should get to make the decision where the placement happens, what priorities they want to assert. And all of this, as you mentioned, is designed to prevent the kind of things that happened, I mean, early in the 20th century, right. not, right. that not that less than long ago. years That's ago, right. mm -hmm. where um, Native American children were forcibly removed from their families, mm -hmm. taken, into, uh, taken into boarding schools, um, forcibly converted to Catholicism in many cases. Mm -hmm. What's interesting here is that one of the major players in the anti-Iqua suits um, are, are groups involved in evangelical Christian adoption agencies whose stated goals include conversion of children That's right. That's to right. their religion. That's right. I think that the Native communities are correct to be concerned about this. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's at play, though, is if the courts if the courts take down ICWA, what's to prevent them from taking down other elements of tribal sovereignty, which are so important mm -hmm. to New Mexico and to the 11 percent of uh, New Mexicans who are Native American? Interesting. We swing to Justine Fox-Young on that same question. Has this gone too far? So I think Sophie's mm -hmm. totally right on the law okay. and on the context that ICWA was born out of. Okay. And it's a really complicated um, legal issue, but it's a complicated issue on the ground. And so to say, has it gone too far? I think for practical purposes, it did go far. And, and here are a couple of examples of why I think that's true. Okay. One, um, when you look at the, the preferential, the sort of triangle that ICWA builds, you know, first you try to keep a child with their family, their extended family, with the tribe, and if not, any other tribe, it hasn't worked. It, ha it, it doesn't make sense. And you look at the case that went up to the Fifth Circuit, mm -hmm. the, the, the parents, the, the natural parents of this child, the family of the child, voluntarily terminated parental rights, mm -hmm. you know, liked this family, wanted That's the right. kid to go to this family. And then you have a court saying, well, there's a Navajo family in Albuquerque. Let's try that. Mm -hmm. As a practical matter, it doesn't work. It didn't work. That's that right. placement didn't work. And, and that's so a real example you just used. There was a thought to have this child come to New Mexico mm -hmm. for, for a, a, a family, right. and it didn't work out. So, yeah, and yeah. so this repeats itself over and over. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why is because there, there are not enough foster families mm -hmm. in Native communities. And so we said this is like a, a system that's designed to fail. We have these kids go with non-Native foster families, form an attachment, and, and then, of course, you have heartbreaking case after heartbreaking case where, you know, what are you going to do with these kids? And so it went too far because we're relying on a, a greater community outside the Native community to, to care for these kids. And then when it comes to the question of who, who the parents actually are, mm -hmm. then you've got, you've got a, a law that doesn't work. So I think I'm actually surprised it's taken 40 years to reach this point mm -hmm. um, where we're considering what to do. I don't think it's a, an issue of, of race. I think Sophie's right on the law. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's no question we're dealing with sovereign nations. Right. And, and the problem is because ICWA went too far, I, I think it's, 
we're at the point now where it's not able to do what it was designed to do to protect these kids. Mm -hmm. And all these other issues of sovereignty are in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And so for practical purposes, it did. And, and it is very heartbreaking. Serge, the idea of states' rights has come up uh, from the Texas folks in this situation. Uh, the idea that this is unconstitutional. You know, to touch on that if you would, this idea that it seems like it'd be a snowball rolling downhill, it's getting a little bit bigger as it goes here, the idea of states' rights having a little bit more firmament here than the other way. Yeah, the states' rights question, the 10th Amendment, this is something that's been mm -hmm. uh, a relatively you know, new on the scene argument that's been used by mm -hmm. um, Federalist, for Federalist purposes, conservative folks. Um, um, that is getting a lot of momentum and having, having its day in the sun, mm -hmm. right? this idea that somehow the federal law um, telling a state what to do is commandeering state agencies mm -hmm. right? instead of what it really is is an end run around federal law. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's gathering momentum and I think is, it's something to keep an eye on. I think in this context, mm -hmm. right, it's interesting the, the person who folks are most looking to to protect the tribal rights and sovereignty and, mm -hmm. and uphold the Supreme Court's role in protecting um, tribal nations is uh, Justice Gorsuch, mm -hmm. who from his time out here in the West That's right. has, and interesting since point he's there. been uh, in Washington, has shown that he's willing to, mm -hmm. to, to, to keep the, you know, the court in its role of protecting tribal sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Crystal, uh, Justine mentioned the situation in Texas in this whole how, how it was just sort of, like how, it depends on how you look at it, so to speak, at this point. You, you know what I mean? It's almost like a refraction. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I'm Please. not gonna pretend that I'm an absolute subject matter expert in terms of legal mm -hmm. law. I'm not gonna Fair enough. that, that line Fair of enough. that's gonna pretend. But mm -hmm. one thing I do know is culture and preservation of culture. And you know, the reason why this is so complicated is not only because of the sovereign nation that we're dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, the, the federally registered tribes, but you know, I find it very ironic. You know, I was looking at a case down in Southern California from 2016 where mm -hmm. a child, uh, a family of the Choctaw Nation, uh, I might misquote that, but mm -hmm. one of the uh, federally recognized tribes decided to pull a girl from their foster family and she was only 1.25% of the bloodline of the native reservation. Oh, wow. um, and that was enough to prove that she should have been pulled from her foster home. I, find, I found that situation very ironic in the implementation of, of, uh, of ICWA because there are some federal, um, federal, uh, federally recognized uh, tribes that don't even give medical benefits, financial benefits, or family benefits yeah. to families that are even one sixteenth or one twenty fifth of the um, of the uh, the bloodline. And so, again, like, is it? Are we using the law in its best intent possible? That's question number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, if it is a preservation of culture, is the tribe actually proving that by taking the child away from their foster family, do they have the right resources to actually train them on the native language, the native um, uh, religion, the um, whether it be Christianity or not? Mm -hmm. um, it's a big question mark on what the actual intent is. And, and so I just find it as a big, 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 big contradiction. And mm -hmm. you, know, you look back at it, if they're being pulled from foster homes, I mean, the word foster and the concept of foster homes is a foster homes for a reason. It's not adopting. And those that have right. been adopted, some cases they've been pulled, some cases they haven't because mm -hmm. of the legality behind it. So again, I'm not an expert in this subject matter mm -hmm. field. I am a big believer in preservation of culture, but are people using the loopholes in the law to actually benefit their families? Mm -hmm. Very much possible. Interesting points there, appreciate that. Sophie, mm -hmm. I ask you to finish up this uh, subject with us here. The other idea that's interesting out there is whether foster families are even notified 
uh, uh, that there's a child is placed with them, that the child is Native American. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, it, so it, it opens the door, opens the door, it closes the door and allows people to walk in the back door to make the situation difficult, it seems I, to me. You know what, I, I think um, that this is certainly an area <clears throat> in which the system is not perfect. Right. Because they're, they're um, often tribes are not notified that somebody, That's that a child is being placed, mm -hmm. um, that it, it takes some work for them to figure that out. Right. It shouldn't be a situation where you're just kind of able to get away with it because right. nobody told you. I mean, ultimately, the foster parents, the foster family, doesn't have the same rights as, as natural parents. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we sort of heard a little of this. You know when you're fostering that adoption is not a given. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I certainly have friends who have, who have fostered children and they struggle with that. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, um, when you make the move toward adoption, you just have to be aware that right. this is a possibility. And, and you know, the U.S. president said something um, about Native Americans uh, not too long ago about how so-and-so doesn't doesn't look Native American so they shouldn't be considered Indian and it's just you can't do it based on the appearance there's mm -hmm. too much complexity mm -hmm. there. and it's up to the tribe yeah. that's it right up to the tribe to that's decide. right just yes they are a nation got about a minute left I want to swing uh, actually I thought I finished with you only finish with search <laughs> sorry about that gotta swing DACA into this obviously you know, we got things going on this week at the Supreme Court about this. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea about uh, dreamers and, and, and where this is all going to end up going, uh, all indications, at least, the, the president's going to get what he wants a little bit out, out of this, for sure. Um, what, does this, what does this say about us and how we view children overall in the United States, how we're managing children here, and, and who gets to go where and under whose household? See what I mean here? It's, we're in this weird flux period right now, well, it seems to me. I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly all of the folks who are DACA recipients, right? Are, right. I think universally people can agree. Look, they didn't decide to come here of their own volition. They are American children and everything except for the, mm -hmm. the passport they carry. And we are saying that, you know, for political gain, we're going to sort of mm -hmm. just remove all of the things that they could bring to our country and all of the reliance that they've had and all mm -hmm. the, the fabric of the society that, you know, that we've created with right. these folks as part of it. And obviously, I think it's short-sighted and exceedingly ill-advised. Right. Um, I, I know you're trying to stop me, but That's I just right. want to say, uh -huh. in terms of going back to ICWA briefly, Please. right? Yeah. Um, Native children are removed from their homes at a disproportionately yes. high number rate, mm -hmm. um, and it is a, it's a live issue, right? We it's and it's complicated, and mm -hmm. for every story we hear of something like we're hearing in the news, right? There's someone who was fostered out and is upset and cut off from their you know tribe, their right. traditional mm -hmm. culture That's and right. their tribal roots, yep. and. It's complex. We have a specialized court that we're just starting here in Albuquerque to address purely these ICWA questions hmm. because it's so prevalent and such a live issue mm -hmm. and so challenging that it requires that. Glad you got that in. Good stuff there. We're out of time for this go round. We'll take a quick break, reset, and be back in a moment with yet another twist in the Victoria Martin's murder case. With solar and wind, these are now, with, especially with the incredible decline in prices for these things, set up distributed generation. We actually put the solar plant or the wind facility right in the area where it needs to be and providing the energy then, or the electricity, as it's needed and when it's available in those communities. 
Public outrage boiled over this weekend surrounding a judge's decision to release a suspect charge in relation to the murder of 10-year-old Victoria Martins. Judge Charles Brown ruled there wasn't enough evidence to prove Fabian Gonzalez was a flight risk or an ongoing threat to the community. Now, roughly 100 people protested in front of the courthouse on Sunday, even calling for the judge's dismissal and surge. The frustration is totally understandable here, but court officials say the judge is just following the letter of the law passed by voters in 2016 that increases the standards for keeping a suspect behind bars pre-trial. Do you agree? Do I agree with <laughs> the idea that the judge was correct here? Sorry, my fault. That he was just following the letter of the law, and he was correct here, and, and there was just no wiggle yeah, room. Absolutely, for him. I can't weigh in on the merits of that decision, but sure. this is the way the system is supposed to work. Okay. This this moment was always going to come where a high-profile case with an exceedingly unpopular defendant right. uh, was put through the you know the process that we voted into our constitution mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, mm -hmm. right? And the policy behind it does not change. Mm -hmm. The idea is, we think that we should default towards keeping people out of jail while mm -hmm. they're awaiting trial because the costs are very high. We presume people to be innocent. We have seen that people lose their homes, they mm -hmm. lose their jobs, their whole lives falls apart. We've seen that the longer someone is incarcerated pre-trial, the more likely they are to get a longer sentence, mm -hmm. to re-offend if they if they're after release, to, to have other negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right? So we said let's take a look at that and have decided that we want to lean away from keeping people in jail. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not a question of is this popular, you know, and is this something that's going to incite outrage. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this on the show before, uh, that you're going to see outrage and, and people get upset when they think that someone was released who should not have been. Mm -hmm. You never are going to see or hear about the times when someone should have been released but was kept in in um, uh, custody sure. and caused all of the, the, you know, the ripple effect and the downstream effects. Mm -hmm. And so it's always going to skew this way and it is, it's way early in the game to decide whether this is a good or a bad thing generally or in this specific case. Mm -hmm. But I think this played out exactly the way it should have done and the way that we've intended it to. We want it to be a default to someone not staying in jail. Mm -hmm. And if, up, if you want to talk about the specifics of this case and what yeah. brought us to this point, yep. APD and the district attorney totally botched this case. And this guy was locked up for three years. Right. You got protesters lined up outside the court. Why aren't they lined up outside the district attorney's office and mm -hmm. outside APD? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. Judge Brown knows way more facts about this than we do, yeah. reading the paper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But all he can do is take the case as it stands now. And, you know, what's happening in detention hearing after detention hearing, as Serge points out, mm -hmm. plenty of people are remaining locked up who shouldn't be, and here's why. Mm -hmm. APD is stacking these search warrants. They're just jamming every bad fact in, mm. preparing for a detention hearing. That's what the judge has to read. The judges, judges are locking people up based upon those bad facts. Defense attorneys have very little to work with at these very early stages because you want to decide on detention right away. Mm -hmm. And people are getting locked up. So now here we have a case where we've got the benefit of three years. We can see how botched the investigation was. Mm -hmm. We can see that the, that the case is not what it was when it was presented you know, prior. And uh, you've got a judge doing the right thing. So call Raul and, and you know, call up APD and say, why are you screwing these cases up? This mm -hmm. is high profile. You've mm -hmm. got to do this right. Mm -hmm. it, it ain't the judge's fault. Interesting point there, Sophie, because mm -hmm. it, it, the lightning, the judge thing is a lightning rod thing. We've all sort of, not we all, but a lot of folks have sort of fallen into that trap. Is this the kind of case that will turn around and have folks do exactly what Justine's mentioning here? Take a look at the situation. That, the guy wasn't even in the room. 
These when the murder took place, sure. he wasn't even there, for gosh sake. These I aren't mean. necessarily <laughs> conversations that we're seeing when, when pro- protesters show up. Right. They have um, a heartfelt conviction, um, no pun intended, mm-hmm. that um, something needs to be done. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting things about the interviews with folks who are at the protest uh, involving um, this release is that you hear a lot of something needs to be done, mm-hmm. someone needs to be held accountable, etc. And and I think it, it shows sort of um, how opaque our legal system is to most people that they're they're saying, well, right now, today, the judge is the villain, and not recognizing that there are well-defined, concrete steps that lead to the judge really ha- having right. to follow the law. Yep. And so when we say the law is the problem, um, I'm not sure that that's true. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I, I think that we have um, many more steps that we need to be tracking before that. And, and frankly, one of them, although this, I don't think this is a get out of jail free, uh, sorry, terrible puns, um, is that we have underfunded our judicial sure. system. We've underfunded our public defenders. We've underfunded right. um, our prosecutors to such an extent um, that all they're kind of left with is it's your fault. No, it's your fault because mm-hmm. they, they're not, I'm going to, to Justine's point, we're not necessarily seeing the job being done here mm-hmm. before it gets to the judge. Interesting points there. You know, Crystal, when you think about it, uh, Earl Toros was mentioned, and so he's calling for some reforms. Bill Reams calling for reform up in, the, up in our legislature. Is there a middle ground here somewhere? Can we honestly get to a point where Unless a defendant can prove he's not going to be a problem, a judge can say, no, actually, you're going to stay here as a violent criminal until you have your, until you have your day in court. Can we actually get to a middle ground on that? Uh, I don't That's know. Tricky. Like, it's, yeah. it's absolutely tricky, and especially since you know, policy and legislation came into the unfortunate um, uh, disadvantage to what the courts and crime and safety in our community has been. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's the technicalities, it's the devil in the details that has caused us to, to where we're at right now. Right. But I mean, I, you know, I very much applaud, you know, everybody that is involved in crime and safety to make sure that they're writing better policies so they can actually make our community safer. That we have to think about that. But moving to that aside, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, you know, the gentleman who, um, uh, with, well, why am I forgetting his name? Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he was released from jail, et cetera. Like, now we have to think back of not only did the case, case get so botched with, the, with, with uh, the investigation and him being released from jail. It hasn't been released yet, right? Oh, no, no, yeah, because he's looking yeah. for home. There's nowhere so to go. Now, so now we have to think about <laughs> right. not only is it an issue for his public safety, like him as an individual, like mm-hmm. not only getting fights in jail, et cetera, mm-hmm. but now he's got a reputation that he's got to clean up, especially with like the bail and, and the, the drama behind, you know, his cousin and, and his ex-girlfriend, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, the part that really scares me, though, that, that I know that no law can, I mean, the, I get it. The letter of the law is the letter of the law. There's no doubt about that is when they say that you know he has a charge of child he's about to be tried for a charge of child abuse resulting in death i don't see how he is not enough to be a danger in society gotcha. right and that's i know the lawyers in the room are like crystal you don't understand it and that's fine but it's it's very much the the, the point that comes down to is the public is there enough information for the public to genuinely understand why this person should have been let go? Mm-hmm. Um, is it, is it, you know, do we really need better bail reforms and policies out there? Um, absolutely. Uh, it's just, it's a big mess. Uh, and yeah. that's the best way I can put it. You know, Mr. Gonzalez has some previous stuff about failure to appear. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, he's got some check, checky history, whatever you want to call it. 
Is that good enough uh, in your view? I mean, three years is a long time. Is a year and a half good enough? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, these are nuanced you know? decisions, and these yeah. judges are doing the best they can. One problem in state court is you don't have an appeal. The judges really have ah. to get it right. I mean, our, our appellate courts are taking a very hands-off position on these cases. Unlike in federal court, you go before a federal magistrate, you get locked up, you can have an Article Three judge review it. And so, you know, I, I think we shouldn't Monday morning quarterback it. Mm -hmm. Judge Brown is extremely seasoned and experienced. Mm -hmm. He was a prosecutor for many years. He's got good horse sense. Mm -hmm. He sees defendants all day long, every day. These judges have massive dockets. They've got to make the best call they can yep. with what's in front of them. Yep. And you know, he's, he's heard a lot of argument on this case. He's actually handled another case that was similar where he was under some controversy because he had to let someone go under the letter of the law. So he's, he's not a stranger to this, uh, certainly. I, but I have to, I, I mentioned Bill Ream, and I want to stay with you on this a little bit. He wants to reattack the idea of bail reform in the legislature. Again, same question I asked Crystal. Is there a middle ground here for this yeah, legislation? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any interest group that's totally satisfied with where we are in bail reform. Right. It's hard. I mean, we started out with, if you're poor, you're going to be locked up. Mm -hmm. And everybody agreed that that was a problem right. because people that's were right. buying their way out. And so mm -hmm. we needed to do something. Justice Daniels really spearheaded um, this this change. Mm -hmm. and I And I think... We're better off than we were because we're asking the right questions. Right. But it is evolving, and we're going to have to incrementally get to a point where we're giving the judges the tools to make the right decisions. But as right. part of that, it's not necessarily a legislative fix. You've got to have prosecutors who are bringing honest um, appraisals of the case to right. the court right. and cops on board and defense attorneys on board. So I think we'll, it's, it's better, but mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to make these calls, and sometimes... We make mistakes. And surgery, I have to finish where we started. The okay. voters voted for this. Yep. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. would not have, unless there were serious problems for a long time here about people being locked up mm -hmm. for incredible amounts of time over nothing. Yep. Do you know what I mean? So I, I same question for these last, is there a middle ground here you can see possibly coming here where judges have the tools they need to lock up the most violent offenders, but then not violate rights at the same time. Is, is that a possibility here? Yeah, I mean, I'm not convinced that that's, that judges don't have those tools now, right? Okay. That th there may be, there's always going to be hiccups as we start to implement these things. It's still that's right. a very new thing. That's right. Um, and like, like I said, you know, this was always going to happen. Okay, now let's figure out, you know, what's the right response. Good point there. Um, have to leave that there for now. Still to come this week on the line, growing concerns about a shortage of firefighters in rural communities across New Mexico. Rural cities, That's rural right. towns all over the country yep. are suffering. People are leaving, they're getting older. I, one volunteer firefighter joked that you know, kids today, they just don't seem to want to run into burning buildings. Um, uh, yeah, millennials. We laugh, but right. you know, right, but, exactly. Uh, but uh, I think it's, <laughs> it, it is the problem of us trying to rely on an outdated model that's just not going to work anymore in rural America right. or rural New Mexico. The Energy Transition Act, signed into law this year by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, requires all local utilities to get half of their electricity from renewable sources by 2030. That's prompting a shakeup among rural electric cooperatives, which serve more than 200,000 people in New Mexico, and with the wholesale supplier where cooperatives buy their power. Kevin Robinson Avila is a business reporter with the Albuquerque Journal, and he wrote an in-depth series this week exploring the issue. He spoke with NMIF correspondent Megan Kamrick, but what all this means for New Mexico consumers. 
Kevin, thanks for being here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you for inviting me. You did a three-part in-depth series this week on the shakeups among rural electric cooperatives here in their wholesale power supplier. Let's start with Kit Carson Electric Cooperative in Taos. It's blazing a new path by cutting ties to its longtime supplier, Tri-State Generation and Transmission, and it went with a different provider, Guzman Energy. Why did Kit Carson do this, and why is it so significant? number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, Kit Carson has been trying for many years to uh, go in the renewable energy route with solar, wind, and other technologies and get away from fossil fuels. And with a long-term contract with Tri-State stretching out to 2040, under those contracts, the rural electric cooperatives are only allowed to produce up to 5% independently from what Tri-State supplies to them. So the other 95% must be under the contract bought from Tri-State, and that doesn't give a lot of leeway for an individual cooperative that wants to pursue alternative energy projects. The other part was up at least until 2014, Tri-State was regularly raising its rates every year or two. And it actually went up from about 2000 to 2014 by more than 100%, the rates, the wholesale rates that Kit Carson was paying. And then in steps this alternative energy provider, kind of an upstart challenging tri-state's dominance in the region, uh, offering to rapidly move to alternative energy, solar, wind, and so forth, uh, and save a great deal of money doing it. And so Kit Carson decided it would buy its way out of its contract, break that contract, and sign with Kit Carson, and that's what it did. Sign with um, Guzman. Well, excuse me, with Guzman, mm -hmm. yes. Bottom line, yeah, they have a goal to be 100% daytime powered by solar energy, 100%. That's kind of trailblazing, and they expect to have that in place by 2022 with rapid rollout of solar facilities and wind facilities, battery storage to back up the solar. They expect to be the new energy mandates in New Mexico, say, all utilities or electric cooperatives and others in the state need to be at 50% renewables by 2030. That is, everything that they get, all the, energy, the electricity they provide to their customers, 50% of it needs to come from renewable resources. This is under the fuel. New Energy Transition Act. That's correct. Signed into law this year. Right, okay. took effect in, in June in New Mexico. And Kit Carson says, with what it's doing, it will reach that 50% by 2022, eight years in advance of basically every other utility or, or rural electric cooperative in the state. How is this being touted as a possible model for other cooperatives? Well, the model is, I mean, there's two, two sets of things going on here. One is Tri-State is a generation and transmission association. It is basically owned by all the cooperatives it serves. It is based on the whole uh, structure of rural electric cooperatives, which came up in the 1930s under um, the reforms at that time, the Rural Electric Cooperative. Oh, the Rural Electrification Act? Act, mm -hmm. yes, which gave rise to cooperatives because in the uh, rural areas where there are so few people and so much distance between them, it's incredibly expensive to run those transmission lines and provide the energy and get it out there. And so by the time, you know, the 1930s were around, urban centers, everybody had electricity. But really rural areas and farming communities, they still didn't have it in many places. So the rural electric cooperatives came about to supply uh, uh, those that electricity, much more expensive, mm -hmm. um, with federal uh, help 
to do so. And in the process of all that, not just the raw electric, these are distribution cooperatives, they don't produce their own energy, that's incredibly expensive and complex. So associations like uh, uh, Tri-State Transmission and Generation, or Generation and Transmission, uh, came about in order to provide that energy to these cooperatives, which then distribute the electricity to their members around, around the state. So Tri-State has been in uh, uh, operation since 1952, I think. Mm -hmm. um, bottom line is they invested over decades, and Tri-State actually started serving New Mexico in the year 2000. Um, so it's going on 20 years serving the New Mexico cooperatives. But they serve like 43 electric cooperatives in four different states. They're called tri-state, but it's actually four states. And the vast majority of those cooperatives are in Colorado and New Mexico. Thing is that they've invested an immense amount of money in the generating facilities, be they coal plants or other types of energy. Um, and they owe a lot of money on those things. And so you sign long-term contracts. This is to provide stable electricity to the cooperatives. And that is a debt, basically, that all the member cooperatives take on their shoulders in, in a way that reflects the size of the cooperative and so forth. Everybody paying for and mm -hmm. staying in the contract is the way that you pay mm. that back. That's how all this got set up. So it's provided a very important service for decades. But mm. um, in order, so your question was, mm -hmm. how did all this come about? There's two things going yeah. on here. One is, you have these new mandates in Colorado and New Mexico to move toward renewable energy and low carbon resources. Um, and you have people on the ground who are customers of those cooperatives who want that to happen. Um, and in order to make that happen, like in the case of Kit Carson, though, you've got this contract that stretches out to 2040, and I told you the parameters, 5% is all you can generate on your own. How do you do that? They wanted Tri-State to move faster into renewables so or at least give it the independence to do so and uh, tri-state is not set up to do that so they broke away from the cooperative and what happened is for other cooperatives watching it and facing the same kinds of things that kit carson is facing they started thinking maybe we should go that route and so in colorado now there's three cooperatives including the biggest cooperative in the entire tri-state network in colorado mm. is considering going that route breaking away from tri-state so are the cooperatives sort of more leading on moving to renewables than some of the bigger utilities like PNM? No, no, okay. I, I don't think that's the case. There are, uh, some cooperatives are definitely leading. And really it depends on their customer base and what that particular customer base wants. Um, and is the cooperative leadership responding to that co uh, customer base or membership base to do the things that they want? In the case of Kit Carson, they have much more... A clean economy oriented, let's say, community mm -hmm. up there that really wants these things with a leadership in the cooperative that wants to respond to those things, and they've really moved aggressively in this direction. Other cooperatives are more happy with the uh, services they're getting from Tri-State. There aren't any other cooperatives in New Mexico right now. Eleven are served around the yeah. state by Tri-State that are considering leaving Tri-State. They're happy with the services Tri-State is providing. But in Colorado, it's kind of an uproar because you have these big cooperatives that do want to go that route. Now, Kit Carson had to pay about $37 million to end its contract. How yes. does, that's a big financial hit. How does it justify that? Bottom line is Kit Carson and the contract it signed with Guzman Energy that Guzman Energy promised them. First off, Guzman Energy fronted the money to pay that $37 million, Oh, okay. And Kit Carson is paying it back, and it will be all paid back, I think, within a year or two. Um, but it uh, promised to help Kit Carson set up 
the projects, the solar projects, and they've installed them all around the northern areas, and they're still doing so. Um, and that energy then, the wholesale, first off, the energy they get from those projects, plus when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing, the backup wholesale power that Guzman provides to, mm -hmm. the, to the cooperative is cheaper at the wholesale level for Kit Carson. They calculate that over the life of the contracts, 10-year contract going out to 2025, they'll have saved between 50 and 70 million, even with the 37 million they paid. So now that, that Kit Carson will be free to set up its own, which it had limited ability to do under Tri-State, it can set up its own solar generation systems. And it is. And they yeah. have, this is the interesting part. It's a model that they're really, and that's why I called it trailblazing, of what they call distributed generation. What we've had for decades, for more than a century, is these huge centralized power plants with utilities that then run those plants. And in this case for cooperatives, then supply it to distribution cooperatives who then run it out to the houses and the buildings and everything else. Um, public, excuse me, um, uh, private entities or, or public utilities like PNM, they run the generation and the distribution. But it's all been these huge centralized coal plants and other facilities like nuclear, all centralized in one place. And it's, these are very expensive things to, to, to construct and to operate. With solar and wind, these are now, with, especially with the incredibly decline in prices for these things, set up distributed generation. We actually put the solar plant or the wind facility right in the area where it needs to be and providing the energy then or the electricity as it's needed and when it's available in those communities, distributing it mm. all over. That distributed generation model is something that Kit Carson is really spearheading and it's allowing it to uh, still maintain grid reliability through distribution. One place is not you know, cloudy over there, but it's still sunny over here. It supports each other. Battery storage to back it up, new technology, so that they save the electricity for when that sun isn't shining. Um, and then, of course, they rely on Guzman for mm -hmm. when none of that is available for the wholesale electricity that Guzman sells them. But that's a very, very new model that National Renewable Energy Laboratory, DOE facility in Colorado, is actually working with Kit Carson to study the model, see how it works, and make it something that other rural cooperatives could consider. Now, the city of Socorro and also Bloomfield are also pursuing a contract with Guzman. Yes, yeah, important to say, though, neither, first off, neither of those uh, cities are um, tri-state members. Okay. They receive, or did, in the mm -hmm. case of Aztec, they broke away from the Farmington Municipal Utility uh, I think in 1960s, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, Bloomfield <laughs> um, is still a member or receives its electricity okay. from Farmington uh, Municipal Utility. They now want to break away from Farmington to sign with Guzman and go the Guzman route. Aztec already did it, but of course they broke away from, they're getting all this their power now from Guzman, but they broke away in the 1960s. Now what does Tri-State say in response to some of the criticism leveled by Kit Carson and some of the other cooperatives about, you know, your rates are too high, we, you're not moving toward renewables fast enough. I want to stress that got to look at it very objectively from both sides. And Tri-State, like every utility in the country with the changing energy landscape that affects ge electric generation across the board, uh, faces big challenges. And those big challenges come from what has been the way we've 
generated and supplied and distributed electricity over decades. They invested a lot of money to do that. And those systems cost money to operate, and the older they get, the more those expenses for um, mm -hmm. operation and maintenance go up and so forth. And so, it, and what's most important is we're talking rural electric cooperatives. Remember I was saying these are vastly- A lot more vast expensive to Much more expensive to get the electricity out to those small populations spread over huge areas. And so their costs are much higher than public utilities or municipal utility like Farmington just serving its own little community. So over a number of years, their rates were going up, but they've worked very hard in the past five years to keep those rates stable, trying to get their own costs and operations in line. They're also designing new plans to add a lot more renewables to the system. They already are adding a lot more renewables to their system. And they're looking at revising their contracts to allow the rural individual rural cooperatives to produce on their own a lot more wow. than 5%. So they're looking at all kinds of very um, innovative ways to deal with what are objective challenges that they face like everybody else. And that some cooperatives want to go the independent route, well, that's all fine and dandy. But if everybody shares the costs of all the investment they made in these systems, and then all of a sudden five, ten mm -hmm. cooperatives pull out, you're leaving all that burden on the shoulders of others. So that's why they charge the exit fees. Now, the exit fees, like the $37 million, should be in line with what's, you know, fair and just. And that's a whole battle. What is fair and just to buy your way out of the contract so you don't overburden all the remaining cooperatives in the system? So how do all these changes potentially affect ratepayers? Well, that's a bigger question. Let's look at the bigger picture. Um, we have very strong, probably the strongest mandates in the country right now in terms of changing how we get our electricity. 50% renewables by 2030. And uh, 80% renewables by 2040, 100% carbon free, meaning you could also mm -hmm. maybe get it from natural gas plants that capture the carbon or something by 2045. For rural cooperatives, because it's harder on them, the larger expenses and so forth, that's stretched out to 2050. But those are huge mandates. And um, there are huge costs involved. So when Tri-State works to shut down, it's got about 50% of its electricity still comes from coal plants. That's the highest intense carbon plants you can, you can uh, use to supply electricity. And all that investment in those plants, what do they do uh, when they shut those plants down and construct in their place renewable energy like solar and wind? There are huge expenses involved there. And so the whole process of moving toward renewable generation on the one hand will help, not just the climate, mm -hmm. but on um, the cost side, because those are incredibly expensive centralized plants, the prices for alternatives like solar and wind have come down so fast and so much that there'll be real savings in terms of using that generation versus the coal plants, but you're still left with the legacy debts and mm -hmm. investment and how do you deal with that? And so how do you keep the rates moderate for consumers in rural areas as they go through that process? That's gonna be a big challenge for Tri-State. If you have a cooperative like Kit Carson that breaks off on its own, no longer paid its 37 mm -hmm. million, no longer has to take on the burden of that whole transition that the big tri-state, serving four states, is going to go through, well, their rates individually will benefit a great deal. That's mm. where the 50 to 70 million comes from because they can immediately get the benefits of the lower cost of solar and, and, and wind and no longer be paying tri-state. So there are different routes, but what's fair? How, you're asked, how is it going to affect consumers? Well, you have to take into account the bigger picture of where all this electricity has come from from decades and 
what other cooperatives that don't have necessarily the resources do what Kit Carson did, pushing all those costs for that transition onto fewer cooperatives, that's going to impact consumers. So we just have about 30 seconds left, Kevin, but what do you plan on watching and following in the coming months? Um, well, one thing, which is not the rural cooperatives, but PNM and its case with the San Juan generating station, the coal plant that they want to shut down, uh, there's a whole process going on in the regulatory level here in the state. All of that is part of the mandates. All these things changing and happening, rural or PNM, is coming from very strict mandates, and we want to watch and see how the electricity, the utilities, and cooperatives are responding to those mandates. Well, Kevin Robinson Avila, thank you so much for your reporting on this for the Albuquerque Journal. Thanks for talking with us about it. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. It's a frightening thought. A community's entire fire department going up in smoke, basically. That's the threat recently faced by residents in Springer when their last firefighter, who also happened to be the fire chief, suddenly resigned. According to a KRQE report by Lise Mitri, the town is scrambling to replace that chief and recruit new volunteer firefighters, but the challenge is daunting, Crystal. Springer is not the only small community when you think about it that relies on volunteer firefighters. Those shortages are more than just bodies. You know, Springer's been warned about this. It's a difficulty, but then the chief up and quits. Yes. It, I, if you were the mayor, I forgot his name, Mo or Bo, I'll get it in here in a second, but if you were the mayor, what do you do in those situations where the fire chief just suddenly ups and quits? You've got all this bad paperwork behind you um, about how bad your Without cursing, is. I will say you got to get your butt to work right away. There's mm -hmm. no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw the story. I think Lizay did a really fantastic job. Yes, they did. Um, you know, she the did. images mm -hmm. of Springer, New Mexico being a quiet town and no firefighter. It's very common across the state. Valencia County has a major shortage. Right. Um, and, and so I, I look to you know what what do we know as firefighters and what do they know as firefighters rural communities actually consider you know volunteer firefighter organizations um, as almost like your water cooler um, it's your it's your camaraderie it keeps you busy we were talking about you know staying active right and a lot of the people forget that you know being a volunteer firefighter um, it does contribute you know several years into to your PERA uh, to your PERA mm -hmm. um, it also um, gets you out of the house and obviously it, you do something to mentally challenge yourself sometimes people forget the amount of time that it actually takes to be a volunteer firefighter mm -hmm. and the amount of trainings which is why Springer lost uh, so much or they they the uh, the fire marshal, the state fire marshal, mm -hmm. saw that you know Springer has 25 violations um, in their department because of lack of training, lack of operations, right. et cetera. So yes, the burden is back on the mayor to find some type of emergency funding to help mm -hmm. correct those issues. Um, there was even something in Valencia County where the firefighters, the volunteer firefighters, um, half of their force uh, of firefighters was volunteer. Mm -hmm. I mean, their equipment went bad during a brush fire at wow. home, so they're underfunded. Yep. Um, volunteer firefighters see this as like their form of physical Kiwanis club, right? Mm -hmm. Because it has to be mission driven. Well said. It has to be um, operationally sound um, and they also have to serve their community. So there's just a lot of challenges around volunteer firefighters in terms of time. People right. are busy. People are traveling more. Um, people are getting older and younger people are not seeing quite the benefit of becoming a, a volunteer firefighter. Mm -hmm. um, they're sometimes unpaid and they're asked to do a training. Um, during their jobs, so they'll lose money from taking the time off mm -hmm. um, and then having to do a training that's ultimately free for them. 
Um, you know, it has to go back to what we think about when terms of running a volunteer organization, whether it be a Kiwanis, a fraternity, whatever it is. We have to think about how do we sell people on the concept of volunteering based off of the mission, vision, and values of the organization. Mm -hmm. And firefighters don't see it that way. They see it as um, I have to make sure that my community is safe in case there's a fire that mm -hmm. happens. So it, yep. it's it's um, so to answer your question, sure. the mayor of Springer just has to. Start working on it. And you know, working on it now. poor Mayor Lopez, Bo Lopez, I couldn't quite come up with his name there, but interesting points there. I want you to pick up on Sophie sure. if you could. The I, I, I'm wondering if what Crystal is, is describing here falls under the idea that Springer only gets about $60,000 from the state to help with, with their firefighting mm -hmm. efforts. I hear a whole lot more than that and what Crystal just described for need, a whole lot more than $60,000. Are these folks just plain underfunded they're under, from the state? They're underfunded, mm -hmm. but I think it's also worth noting that mm -hmm. for a community like Springer, the estimate is that they need 12, not one right. volunteer firefighter. That's and so right. The town must have known leading up till now that they didn't have enough volunteer firefighters right. to have one and now he's gone. Is it just sort of feels like wow, this is late to be hearing about this. This is late to it be. Wasn't like a mass walkout where Correct. they all left at Correct. once, and right? And then you think it's a volunteer position, and they they need twelve to cover the twenty four seven. That's a huge commitment on the part of each of those people. Yep. I, I will say too, it's not just the volunteer firefighters that are are um, disappearing in mm -hmm. rural New Mexico and rural America. It's um, ambulance drivers. Yeah. It's it's the full range of emergency services that are it's extraordinarily difficult to maintain those in our rural communities at the same time that we know populations are shrinking in rural communities as we heard they're aging mm -hmm. there comes a point at which the people just are not there to perform these functions That's and right. certainly um, when the facilities the equipment everything is underfunded and you are doing this out of right. uh, out of altruism, That's right. not because it's a, a I think we take that word volunteer as a big bucket, Justine. We throw a lot of things in it, and that probably should be professionalized a little bit instead of just volunteer. So I asked the same question as before, though. Is it a money issue here? 60 grand's not going to get you down the road yeah. too far. I mean, across the board, in terms of emergency services, it's a money issue. It's a money issue at the correctional facility there, where yeah. the same people, and I, I should preface this by saying I have a case up there, mm -hmm. but the same people who are alleged to be molesting inmates are still employed. It's a small community. and right. But it, as far as what struck me about this story is the mayor's reticence to be honest about what's going on yeah. is what comes through. He's not much to say, has he? Yeah. And, and, and what I wonder is, we've got the fire fund, we've got the fire marshal. It's easy for these folks to sit in Santa Fe with green eye shades on and say, 10 violations, 12 violations, 20 violations. What's the state going to do? Okay, mm -hmm. this is a case where maybe government can do something to help this community. Mm -hmm. And... It's quite, it's ironic that violations stack up to the point where we say we're cutting your funding. Right. Well, this is a community that should be at the top of the list. Thank you. They need help more than anybody. And so this is a total failure of government mm -hmm. at every level. And so rather than pointing fingers, now it's, it's time for somebody to come in there and talk about how we build this, this department. Mm -hmm. And certainly they need funding. That's you know, right. yes, they have yeah. failed. And it's been an ongoing process. And the state has known about it. Mm -hmm. And the community has known about it. Mm -hmm. So somebody needs to step up now That's and right. protect the community. That's right. You know, Serge, I'm wondering if there's an opportunity here as well. I mean, Springer, uh, if we think about just our 30,000-foot map of that part of the mm -hmm. state, is there, is there a possibility that the state could somehow corral communities in that region 
to somehow work together and fill in some of these gaps, it, even given some of the uh, distance issues told, uh, uh, Sophie mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, just on the idea of something creative, something different, something, instead of having this town manage its own situation here, which mm -hmm. it clearly can't do at this point. Mm -hmm. Is there a po possibility of that kind of thing? Um, I mean, I think it's, Mm -hmm. And without knowing all the specifics, sure. it's a little bit um, unfair to say it's Springer's, it, this is Springer's issue, right? This is happening. Mm -hmm. Rural right. cities, That's rural right. towns all over the country yep. are suffering. People are leaving, they're getting older. Uh, one mm -hmm. volunteer firefighter joked that, you know, kids today, they just don't seem to want to run into burning buildings. Um, uh, yeah, millennials. We laugh, but, right. you know, right, but, exactly. Uh, but uh, I think it's, <laughs> it, it is the problem of us trying to rely on an outdated model that's just not going to work anymore yeah. in rural America right. or rural New Mexico and right. say this um, should be at the top of our list of funding and other sorts of intervention. And, that's right. And sure, a consortium of communities, right? But we also will say, and we'll also give you some resources to make Thank that you. Happen. Exactly. I'm going to add to Serge's yeah. comment, like, of course, like, Crystal had to call some of her friends from rural New Mexico. Love like, it. what the heck is going on down there? <laughs> and, you know, one of the perspectives that we didn't think about that might not actually be the, the solve all or what we can't really see on, in the news that Lizay just really can't find is, mm -hmm. is remember, I go back to the metaphor of the water cooler, right? So in Roswell, New Mexico, they actually have two versions of a volunteer firefighter mm. because one group gets along better with each other than the uh, other. And so I know it seems very small town, New Mexico, but especially after living there for quite a while, we have to remember like it's the social status, right? Or it's the social norm. Mm -hmm. So with volunteer firefighters, it's, it's something funding can't resolve is how well are they using this as a sake of camaraderie? How well are they using it as a sake for their, their social aspects of gratification of doing something good for the community? Mm -hmm. No dollar amount can, can help gather people together. It's good leadership. So again, not only going back to you know government, you know the mayor of Springer, based off of body language, based off of the way that Lizay was saying that, based off of the big PR faux pas of no comment, right. it very much shows that there's a lack of leadership in terms of empowering um, their citizens to volunteer, yep. um, and a lack of um, initiative to actually go to the state of New Mexico and say we have an emergency, we need help. This right. is New Orleans during Katrina. This mm -hmm. is a failure at every level. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's an excellent analogy, as painful as that is to hear. You're right. And, uh, but I'm still on this idea of the, of the, of the corralling the region effort here. Because I, I throw in, of, of course, uh, climate change. You, you, do you know I, what I mean? And the it, risk I'm of firefighting. Yeah. Certainly, certainly we should be very alarmed about mm -hmm. um, the possibility of an increased, what we've already seen, increased fire danger throughout yep. the state. Now, right. is the Springer Fire Department expected to go out and battle blazes, you know, across federal land, across state sure. land, et cetera? That's not their purpose. Mm -hmm. um, they, they may participate. I'm not Sure. Well, I say when called, I say probably. they, but there's yeah. no they at this point. Sure. But um, <laughs> good point there. But uh, <laughs> you know, we have a larger problem around fire. Yes. Um, and. Uh, it seems to me that we're going to need something fairly comprehensive. It, it's, it reminds me a little bit of that, you know, 25 years ago, I remember reports from insurance companies mm. saying, like, we're really concerned about what was not then called climate change and the effect that's right. going to have on our bottom line and, right. and fire, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we'd like to see planning around that. And mm -hmm. for the most part, we haven't seen the kind of planning that obviously that we need. That's right. Let's see what happens out of this. Springer will figure it out. That meeting they had, of course, Lise reported there were some volunteers wanted to sign up. That's we'll right. see what happens. So mm -hmm. good on those guys. That's all the time we have for this panel. Again, Justine, welcome back. We appreciate that. Congrats on being a mom again. Thanks to all of our panelists for digging in this week and offering their opinions. Appreciate it.
Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.